Everyone has some bad news. Our culture is in trouble. Yes, I know. This is the first time anyone's ever told you that. Our culture is in trouble, right? We've heard it so many times. But why is our culture in trouble? It's because of you. It's your fault. Even worse than that, it's my fault. And the reason why it's our fault is because God gave us a mission and we haven't done it well. God called us to be salt and light in this world. So why is it so common for someone to come to you and tell you our culture is in trouble? But the good news is this. God gave us the tools to rebuild the culture. And those tools are found in Catholic social doctrine. See, Catholic social doctrine is the teaching of the popes, the saints, the sages, the scholars, over the years, all the way from the time of Christ to now, about how the gospel of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, speaks to every aspect of our life, every aspect of our social existence. You see, Catholic social doctrine, however, is not political ideology. It's not philosophy, even. It's moral theology. And because it's moral theology, we should start with the soul of theology, Scripture. So let's use an example from Scripture to talk about why this is so integrated and integral to our faith. Let's talk about a guy who may have heard about him. If not, this is your opportunity to read the Bible, Catholics. His name is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah lived at a very special time for the people of God. He lived in a time post the exile. And the Babylonian exile was like the second slavery, right, for the people of God. And so this time of renewal after the exile was like a second exodus. It was like coming out of this period of desolation and darkness for the people of God. This was a true time of renewal, right? And this is found in two books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. There's also some prophets that you can check out, Old Testament, Catholics, uh, check it out and learn more about that. But what's critical to remember is that you had Ezra, who was the priest figure, and Nehemiah, who was the layman figure, right, if you will. You see, Nehemiah, this renewal that was called forth and Nehemiah participated in, wasn't actually even called forth at first by the Jewish people themselves. In fact, God enlightened the heart of a man, King Cyrus, not even Jewish, to say, go back, go back to your land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, renew your civic life, renew your spiritual life, right? God worked through every aspect of their existence to call them to a new life. It wasn't a very narrow renewal. It wasn't something very small, so big that it even moved people who didn't even believe in God, right, to call them to do this work because it's that important. You see, at first, Nehemiah heard that the people of God had started to go back. He heard that there was already a couple people that had started to go. Yet, when people came and told him the state of affairs, he was cut at the heart with sorrow, with desolation. We have to ask ourselves, are we cut at the heart when we hear about what's happening in our culture? We hear about what's happening in our world. Do we have the sorrow of Nehemiah? Because that sorrow moved Nehemiah to prayer. And he prayed for weeks. I believe he prayed for four months, <laughs> praying to God, pouring out his heart to God. God, you are God of all things. You are God of the Jewish people. Why is this happening? I thought we were your chosen people. We were in exile. 
Now you sent us back and the walls are still destroyed? What are we doing? What is going on? But he wrestled with God in prayer. He fought God and he said, God, help me, show me what am I called to do? You see, the sorrow moved him to prayer and discernment, and then that moved him to action, right? So we can see that. He observed, he judged, and he acted. And actually, this is the traditional model of the church. See, judge, act. You can find this actually in the writings of the popes, right? St. John the 23rd in his document, Matter et Magestra, I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> he says, first one reviews the concrete situation. Secondly, one forms a judgment on it in the light of the principles of Catholic social doctrine and the tradition and the revelation of God. And then one decides how we, in concrete circumstances, apply this. These are the three stages, right? of understanding our social context. And we see Nehemiah go through this in his own way, right? Prior to us talking about it in the way that we do today. So we can see that our tradition is steady all the way from the times of the Old Testament fathers. But going back to Nehemiah's concrete work, right? You can pull out three principles of Catholic social doctrine that Nehemiah lives in his own time. One, solidarity. Two, subsidiarity. And three, family the cell of society, right? You may say, family, why is that? You'll see. But Nehemiah, first off, saw public service, right? Not something for himself, not something for his individual gain, but as an effort, as a work for the common good, right? And this is critical because being moved and, and kind of knowing that God was with him because he saw the grace of God operating with him, he didn't take that knowledge and say, all right, well, God's called me, I am now going to become the, the king, right, the best person. No, he saw this as a service. Everything is a service. He's constantly throughout the book praying to God, saying, God, just remember me. Remember me in this struggle. Remember me in this service, right? In fact, it's all about him emptying himself for God and for the people. And in many ways, he's a type of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ left the glory of God the Father to come and live amongst men as a servant, as one who serves. It's powerful because Nehemiah was in this, right, in, in the post, in the exilic situation, Nehemiah was truly in probably the best position you can be in. He was in the king's palace. And he heard about the suffering. He said, right, I'm in the best place, but let me put myself in communion, in solidarity, in, in love, in, in, in this gift of self for the people who I know God loves. He didn't just think about himself. It was all about others. Leadership at its core, at its best, is a gift of self. Where do we learn this from? Jesus Christ, but also Nehemiah. <laughs> you see, it's a gift of self. And what that means is that Catholics can't sit on the sidelines. You can, go, you can do a lot of things, but you can't sit on the sidelines. That's the only thing you're not called to do, right? And so it's important to recognize. And, and Nehemiah had a lot of excuses because in the time of Nehemiah, all he saw in terms of leadership for the Jewish people was incompetence. In fact, that's how they ended up in exile, partly. But that was not what he used as his model. Indeed, he sanctified his work. He sanctified the work of governance through prayer, through, through asking God for help, and through reading the law of God. A big part of the renewal was not just the, the, the civic life, but it was also the law of God. So we see here solidarity in action. Nehemiah's actions demonstrated operationalizing, putting into action the traditional definition of love that we believe in our Catholic tradition. Love is to will the good of the other. 
But willing the good of the other doesn't mean wishing the good of the other. It doesn't mean imagining the good of the other. It doesn't mean like, hmm, the good of the other. No, it means I'm going to actually put into practice my desire for your good. I'm actually gonna go and enter into community with you, enter into a relationship with you to seek what's best for you, with you, not for you, but with you and in relationship with you. And that's exactly what he did. Indeed, solidarity, the essence of solidarity is love. And so it's important to remember that because solidarity seems like a, a big word, right? But the most important thing to remember is it's love in action. It's not vague sentimentalism. It's not good feelings. It's not well wishes, it's action. I've had a lot of experience with civic engagement. I've both worked with organizations on the ground and in academic institutes looking at civic and community engagement. And I can tell you, and all the people I've talked to and all the research that we've done and kind of touched on, that there's three things you definitely can find in our culture today. That's mass apathy, that's low participation, that's low awareness. So a lot of good things, right? Um, <laughs> And, you know, among Catholics, that's, that's not, you know, it's not just amongst the general population, it's amongst all of us. And that is a very dangerous situation. In the typical American municipal elections, that's city and local for the most part, you see about 27% of eligible voters vote. In some cities, it's as low as 6% elect the highest office in that city. A lot of people say, hey, I'm not called to run for office. I'm not called to do some great things. Well, you can vote in your city and local elections. And actually, that's a good way to love in action, right? You, can, you don't have to even leave, leave your, your town to make a big difference for your whole region just by voting on that one day. But Nehemiah's actions obviously went farther than simply voting. Actually, they didn't have voting uh, <laughs> at that time. And in fact, Nehemiah would put himself in challenging predicaments. Nehemiah actually stood up to people. He stood up to social sin when it occurred at the hands of the most powerful members of his community. The very people he needed to bring about the renewal, the very people he, he went there to serve, the very people he was in relationship with. You can see the struggle of this in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter five, Nehemiah challenges the practices of economic injustice happening at that time, particularly and most detrimentally usury. And he knew that this was against Jewish law. He knew usury was not in accordance with God's will and the renewal that God was calling them to do in accordance with God's revelation. It was hard. It was challenging. These are the people that he was called to serve and love. So how is this going to work? But he recognized this, that the poorest people in the community cannot be kind of like on the sidelines of the renewal. It can't be a renewal for the elite, right? And then the people at the bottom are left to struggle. That's exactly what Nehemiah didn't want to happen. In fact, the situation was so dire for Jewish families that some people were, such, were so much in debt that they had to sell all their land and sell their children into slavery. How is that in accordance with renewal? And he knew this. He knew this. And he didn't bow to elite pressure. He said, what's for the common good? What's God's revelation? What does God have to say about this? And that's important. St. John Paul II reminds us, just like Nehemiah, that we're called to witness to Christ by taking courageous and prophetic stands against political and economic corruption. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. That's exactly what St. John Paul II did. So we can see that this is something we all should do. But it wasn't just Nehemiah going in his zeal and his zealousness and taking everyone's initiative and saying, I'll do all the work. No, not at all. In fact, 
This is where subsidiarity comes in. Because Nehemiah, in his zeal, didn't believe in canceling other people out. He believed in calling people in. He did not craft a professional force to do all the work. He didn't say, hey, all right, everyone just go home and chill, and we're going to go ahead and renew all of society. But you can just stay at home, right? You can just hang out with your family, just do some, you know, general yard work. We'll do all the real work. No, that's not at all what Nehemiah did. He called people into participation. Like a true leader, he called forth the best in everyone. And he called out the responsibility of everyone and the self-determination of everyone and the development of everyone. Every person was called to recognize their responsibility outside their own home. He went at first to rebuild the walls, but it wasn't just him. He said, every person, step outside of your house and rebuild the wall right in front of your own house. Imagine this whole community working together to rebuild their community together. That's what we're called to do as Catholics. We're called to share the joys and the hopes of the people around us of our community, of our world, of our nation. It's hard, it's challenging work. It was hard for Nehemiah, it's gonna be hard for us. But at the same time, before we do that, we have to ask ourselves, where are we called to engage in this process? Where are we called to begin to renew the culture and renew the world? Like I just said, everyone has a place. Everyone's involved, everyone is called forth to do something. You will call it your baptism, you will call it your creation. I think about a group that, that I worked with in my work in East St. Louis, Illinois. And these amazing women had every excuse not to get involved in their community. Parents United for Change was a group of, of mainly single moms in the public housing developments. And um, these single moms were working to develop better and better family leadership skills. And when I was blessed to encounter these women, they had already done many successful things in their community. Uh, and they recognized a big issue. As they were learning to become better leaders in their own households, they recognized that their kids were in danger. You see, their kids had to walk past people, very dangerous people, just to get to school every day. And the moms said this, they were like, what are we gonna do? Why? We don't want our kids to have to walk to school every day, but they were so close that the bus wouldn't come and pick them up. Imagine, kids walking past crime scenes every day. They said, we can't have this, right? We're called to be leaders in our community. What can we do to change this? So they went to the state house and they fought and I've met these these moms, they, they're fighting women. Uh, <laughs> and they fought and they got the bill passed, right? They had every excuse not to engage. They had low bandwidth. They're often taking care of children on their own. They're doing the hard work of the home. They're working often, multiple jobs, some of them. But they said, our fight doesn't stop in the house. Our kids aren't just stuck in the house, they go outside. How can we make our community better for them, for their flourishing? They fought and they won. We can't excuse ourselves. Do we have a world that's good for our families, that's gonna be good for our children, for our grandchildren? We have to fight for that. And this is where the family as the cell of society comes in. Some people will say, okay, those are some two subsidiarity, solidarity, those are some very like Catholic social doctrine-y words, but the family, the family, that's Catholic social doctrine? Indeed it is. If you go into Familius Consortio, St. John Paul II talks about the obligations that society has to the family, but that the family has to society as well. Because the family is, is the first society. Really, it's like, it's like the model of society in a way. So in the home, we see kind of like this nucleus, right, for change, the nucleus for engagement. Very important. But Nehemiah, even in his own reforms, recognized that the family at that time was in desolation for so many reasons. You know, there was, you know, Jewish law at that time basically condemned some of the practices that were very widespread and common. And he knew if we're going to have a renewal, the renewal of the whole society, 
We have to have the renewal of the family, right? They're one and the same. They have to go together. And it was no, in no ways easier than the political work, the hard political work he did. In fact, it was harder. It was more painful for the community. It was more hard, called out, called out more self-sacrifice from everyone. But people were like, we want this renewal to happen. We really want God's will to reign. So we have to change ourselves. We have to change our family if we want to change our society, if we want to build it up, if we want to make it like it was before, a renewal. But we have to ask ourselves as well, how is our family a sign and a sacrament in the culture? How are we divinizing our particular social season? We can't just look at the past and say, well, in the past it was like, what our season? That's what we were called. That's what we're called to divinize and sanctify and bring to God as a gift, right? That's what we're called to do. Are we closed in upon ourselves? St. John Paul II said a truly Eucharistic community can never be closed in upon itself because a Eucharistic community is a community of self-gift, kenosis, of self-emptying for others in service. Do we even know our neighbors? Do we even know our community? But we're supposed to be a sacrament for our neighbors that we don't even know. To that point, the Second Vatican Council also tells us that in our parenting, there's something else we should remember. We're called to educate our children to be missionary disciples within the culture. We're called to educate them to transcend the family circle. We can't be closing upon ourselves, including the way that we train up our children. We can't just put them in the Catholic bubble, right? We have to train them to be effective icons and images of Christ in the world, the world that they'll eventually at some point have to go to. <laughs> they'll have to interact with, they'll have to engage with, and they're supposed to sanctify. But how can you sanctify what you don't know? And how can you sanctify what you don't love? We have to go out and be signs. And we have to teach our children to do the same. It's not easy. A lot of challenges. But we have to do it. You know, St. John Paul II called us all to a new springtime. And so many of us every day look out and say, where is that at? <laughs> where is this new springtime at, St. John Paul II? Um, but we're living in it. Right? It started, we're in it now, and we're called to bring it even further into its fulfillment. But that's going to take going out. Right? We're called to have a deeper sacramental life, devotion to the Eucharist. But we're also called to be a Eucharist. We're called to be Christ in the world. Thank you. Amen.